Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 511. And I'm joined today by Anna Bogutskia. I was really excited to, to, to have this chat. As I'm recording this intro, we've just finished recording it and I'm still buzzing. Honestly, you'll hear that we could have talked for hours on end. Anna's got a new book coming out, which you can pre-order now. It's called Unlikable Female Characters, The Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate. And it was seeing that book and seeing that title. I've, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Anna already, but it was seeing that book and seeing that title made me go, right, we could really have a good conversation about this on the podcast. Spoiler alert, I was right. But double spoiler alert, we talk about a million other things before we even get to that. Trust me, we do get to that and we have a great conversation on it. But we have so many great conversations along the way. And it's all things that you know you, you can hear when I'm buzzing to talk about a particular subject. Like, like you know back in the day if MMA ever came up naturally organically you'd hear me wriggling in my seat we don't talk about MMA I do bring it up once actually but we don't strictly talk about MMA in this episode but you will hear so much seat wriggling on my part as I'm excited to talk to Anna about all these things so um we'll get into it obviously we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com and patreon.com forward slash pip your support is really important to making this podcast work and happen. Primarily, you l- listening and sh- shouting about it. And this is a prime shout about it episode. I think a lot of you are already going to be aware of Anna. S- some of you are not and are going to find a new obsession from her writing to her podcasts to everything, her YouTube stuff, everything that she does. So I need you to shout about this one. I appreciate you doing so. But yeah. Outside of that, supporting via b- b- buying stuff from the web store or supporting on the Patreon really helps, you know, the day-to-day costs. I've been putting out a podcast every week for nine years. It's a madness. And you guys are the reason that's been possible. Obviously, advertising as well. I love my sponsors. I love working with Acast because I'm in complete control. I turn down loads of money on the regular because <laughs> it's not people I want to work with, not people I choose to work with. Everything I take on, I have some level of interest in. Anyway, what am I rambling about? This is an amazing conversation and I'm boring you with the structure of my podcast business. Let's get into it. This is episode 511 with Anna Bogutskia on the Distraction Pieces podcast. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction this piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. Right, we are up and are running. I'm joined today by Anna Bogutskia. Um, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's raining. I think I've done everything I needed to do this week. So yeah. this is this is the highlight of my week. I love it. I'm excited to talk to you because I'm excited to talk about your new book because it's a topic and subject I find fascinating. I'm excited to talk about all your different podcasts because they're generally all on things I'm obsessed with. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you about film because I'm a massive film nerd, but in my opinion, you're far more knowledgeable than me, and they're my favourite conversations. Talking to someone about something you love that knows more than you, so you could just be kind of taking it all in. So, so I'm excited about all of this, but for, I want to start with, uh, we met briefly in person when you were interviewing Gaspar Noé at, 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 at the BFI. Um, yes. 
And it's one of the worst evenings of my recent (laughs) life. Um, Tell me why. And I'll explain why. You were amazing. It was fantastic. Gaspar is my favourite director of all time. And I kind of loved that he's kind of known for at times being an awkward interview or or relishing in stopping people over-intellectualising his work, Mm -hmm. which I adore. I'd had him on the podcast a couple of weeks before um, and it had come really last minute. I had like an hour to prep, but I was like, look, it's my favourite director. I'm going to do it. I normally like more prep time. And it went really well. It felt like, you know, there was a few bits where he shot me down and I kind of got off on it. It was kind of yeah. nice to be yeah. one of those ones where he's, I, I really over-intellectualised something because I couldn't resist. And he kind of went, okay, kind of, yeah. if if that's what you think, cool. And I was like, oh, oh that hurt, but I love it. Um, and it went well. And after it, off mic, I kind of, boldly said, look, I'm an actor as well. I'd love to work with you at some point. I think you're great. And he was like, look, this has been a great chat. Let's keep in touch. Pass on your details. I'm in London in a couple of weeks. Come down. It'll be great. And all that. So I came along all excited. I watched you chat to him. And then I came backstage into a little small room afterwards. And one of the BFI guys kind of introduced me to him. And I forgot until that moment that I hate social interactions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and on a prepared podcast in in my comfort zone, it's amazing. But literally, I had so little to say and there were so many awkward silences. I was kind of like, so so where are you off to after this? And he kind of said, oh, we're doing can next. I'm like, cool, cool. Um, and just had, I, and, and just there were, after a few awkward silences, he kind of just went, all right, see you and walked off and talked to someone else. And I was like, why did I come here? I should have left it as the wonderful prepared conversation that we had. It's a whole art, just socializing. Yeah. And that was my first public events since the pandemic because I've been, I've been ultra cautious because my parents are high risk Mm -hmm. and things like that. So yeah, I think I was even more out of practice, but my excitement got me overconfident. And then, yeah, I drove home going, why, why did that happen? Why didn't I just enjoy the event and go home rather than try and force a nice I mean, personal interaction. You get overconfident with podcasts, don't you? Yeah, I don't yeah. know if this has ever happened to you. I've made genuine new friends, which yeah. is very hard as an adult anyway. But yeah. I've made new friends just because we have recorded together for hours on end. 100%. And then we just yeah. stayed on off mic, just yeah. chatting. Kind yeah. of in an, in an old-fashioned, let's talk on the phone for six hours about yeah. whatever comes to mind. Yeah, And it's, you know, beautiful friendships have blossomed from that. But then when you meet someone in person for the first time after you've spoken to them a lot either on mic or off mic but sort of remotely it's the most awkward thing like you can either be magnificent or be that where you're like but we've had a great chat but now there are no more words there's there's a weird thing that when there's mics in front of you even if you've finished that initial conversation there's a comfort in going onto topics and in directions that don't feel as comfortable in person. Like, it would have been weird backstage at the BFI to start essentially interviewing Gasper in a one-on-one situation. But when we're chatting casually on the on the mic afterwards, it's like, yeah, this is cool. But yeah, it's interesting. So so how do you find that with podcasting and with you, your work at the, the BFI? Because you're thrown in to interview some icons, some absolute film icons. How do you feel the pressure on that to have what you deliver from what I've seen and heard as quite comfortable and casual conversations, but with people who you've probably 
studied a lot over the years. Yeah. I mean, it's a very pinch myself moment in so many ways. But actually, you know what? I don't find them stressful at all. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's not about me. Like yeah. I find this more stressful than interviewing Gaspar yeah. Noé. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like I'm not used to being on the other side. Yeah. So like as someone asking me questions, I will be freaking out internally. Yeah. But when I'm, you know, when you put me on stage in front of 500, 1000 people, I don't care because it's not me. I'm yeah. just a conduit. I just need to make sure to read the person I'm interviewing as best as I possibly can. So it's like, it's matching the energy. So with Gaspar, I did the same thing. I over-intellectualized the shit out of that. Mm -hmm. I had seven pages of questions. (laughs) I reread my, you know, my student thesis on his stuff. I listened to so many interviews of him. I went deep into like, you know, I was reading books and stuff about some of his early work. I had so many questions. And about 15 minutes into that interview, I just threw them all out the window. And yeah. I was just like, no, this is not his vibe. He's not into the intellectual side. Mm-hmm. He's not going to give me any of the the answers that I'm looking for. He wants something entirely different. He was really feeding from the audience. So I'm like, yeah. okay, so I'm going to, I'm just going to match your energy. You want to talk about this? Then I'm going to, I'm going to throw you questions based on that. I yeah. know your work, obviously. So it's, it's not coming from a place of ignorance, but you just have to read the person in front of you and read the room. But I used to be absolutely horrifically shy. Right. Like genuinely, when I went to art school, I would we'd have to, and it was the first time I lived in London. So we'd had to, it would be given a brief. You'd be sent away for like a month or so. You had to do your thing and then present it. And you just had to talk about it for 30 seconds in front of the other students. And I would do my stuff, present my work, and then leave and hide up the stairs of the old St. Martin's building. I found this like weird little nook up some stairs and I would just hide there for hours until everyone had gone. And then I quietly go back down, pick up my stuff and then leave. So it was never heard, never had to do a presentation because I found it so like it would just, the anxiety would cripple me. I'd be like, nope, no, absolutely not. Never, never again. And I like, once I realized what I wanted, that that was just, I couldn't live like that. I started like training myself into being comfortable with improvising in front of people and doing these, you know, being thrown into speaking with people I had, I knew nothing about, had nothing in common with, but I just had to have a conversation because that was my job. And I made, I worked as a tour guide as a student. Wow. And literally that was four hours every day of walking around. I was living in Paris at the time. So walking around Paris with a whole bunch of British and American tourists, showing them the city and basically just telling them stories about the city and helping them around on their holidays. And it was everything I hated. But by the end of that summer, I was like, yeah, I'm no longer scared of being in front of strangers or friends because it's just, it's like a performance. It's not about me. It's about someone else. They're not really looking at me or judging me as a person. They're just here to learn something or listen to a story. Or in the case of those interviews, listen to the actual talent, right? The person they're here to listen to is Gaspar Noe. It's not me. I just need to do a good enough job to like get the best answers out of them. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating to hear though. There's been a couple of Two, two books recently because of recent studies on the on the plasticity of the brain 
And the fact that for years we kind of thought, and we'll all have this, we'll be like, oh, I'm a shy person or I'm a this person, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, all these kind of things. And we kind of have felt for a long time that that's who we are mm-hmm. and that's that. But these studies recently have shown, and it came to mind instantly, because essentially the, the very basic dumbed down, and I've not, I've not read all of it, so the very basic dumbed down version of it is the way they kind of tested this and helped people get over introversion or whatever else was to essentially fake it for a certain amount of time and then it becomes real. So the task would be something like, if you're nervous talking to people, the task would be each day you have to talk to one person. And it's not doesn't have to be a big thing, but it can be say hello to someone in the supermarket, Mm -hmm. say hello to the bus driver. And they found like almost 100% that after a month of this, it changed. And I love to hear that this is like a recent study. You did this years ago with yourself. You, you, you literally <laughs> realised, I'm an introvert, I'm not comfortable in these things. And you went, no, I've yeah. got to force myself to do it. I've got to fake it in a tour guide type situation mm-hmm. until you come out the other end and you're completely relaxed up there. And it's it's yeah. the whole fake it till you make it is such a, a dumbed down version of this amazing study that's really got loads of science behind it and so much work. I'm but sure there's science it, to it. It comes down to that, basically. Yeah. It's going, right, well, if you force yourself to do these things for a certain amount of time in, in small increments, like not mm-hmm. going, right, well, I'm scared of this, so I'm going to do a gig in front of 500 people out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like, no, it's small increments. And I love that because the tour guide thing is really th- th- throwing yourself in because that's talking (laughs) constantly but logically it's throwing yourself in in a personally low stakes situation because it's not like you with the greatest respect to everyone on your tours it's not like you care what they think you're never going to see them again it doesn't matter so it sounds like a big jump but it's low stakes because it's it's anonymous essentially also when you're paying like a 19 year old student to give you a tour of a city you're also not going to get like a a PhD in French history you're going to get a student giving you a tour so it is very low stakes and like I've applied that to almost every single thing that is now a part of my day job or my daily work like you know you don't I worked my way up in a way to being comfortable to being on that stage, the Mm. NFT one stage, which is, I get scary even for filmmakers. You know, when I used to work there, there's a little cubby hole by the stage, by the stage door. And I'd used to, you know, hold the filmmakers, the talent there before they were introduced on stage to do their, their event. And there were many people who were like genuinely anxious about going on that specific stage yeah. it has a power to it like it has so much history to it that you you were like terrified and I remember when I started working there and I was just watching movies there mm. like I was thinking I was like damn can, if one day I'm on that stage doing an interview or something that's going to be wild. It's going to be scary. And even when I started working there, I never put myself on that stage. I was like, no, someone else do those interviews because it's too, it's too much. It's, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm going to do the, I'm going to do NFT3. I'm going to do NFT2, but I'm not going to do NFT1 yet. Like we'll get there and then it will be fine. But I have to like earn that stage. It has that vibe to it, doesn't it? It really does. I remember talking to to Brett Goldstein about it before he started doing his films to be buried with shows there because logically on paper he could get a better payday in different venues a better he could get a bigger audience in he could do all these different things but it was like no if you've got the opportunity to do your comfort zone thing there as well because it's his podcast he's created mm-hmm. it it's not the nerves like I know he was far more nervous going and talking 
to Komodo Mayo up there than than he was doing his own thing because that's where he's you know he's he's yeah. he's at home as such. But he was like, no, it has it has to be there. It, it, well, it means I remember because so we we did those shows, those first shows that Brent did with the podcast yeah. live were with me. Really? Oh, amazing! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. I remember working with him on like putting together what those shows would look like live yeah. uh, at the BFI, and I remember he was nervous about yeah. like it yeah. being the BFI. Yeah, it it, it means something. Um, I I love what you said there about your prep or about how you handled, for example, the, the Gasper interview, because I think it's really interesting. I think it's really v- valid to podcasting. It made me think I had Riz Ahmed on this podcast really mm-hmm. early on because we've known each other for years through music mm-hmm. and that he's been a big inspiration of getting me to move into acting. And one of the things he said early on was his process is he learns his l- lines and his character relentlessly so mm-hmm. he knows them so inside and out, so that on the day, he can throw it all out the window if needs be, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Because he was saying a lot of people get stuck on really learning their script and their performance. And then when they get there, the director makes the smallest change and they're almost frozen because they're like, yeah. I've, but I've, I've learned this. This is how I'm doing it. Or the person that they're acting with does it in a different way and it, it throws them. But I feel that with podcasting. I feel mm-hmm. over-preparation allows me to then not get through half of what I've got there, but it means I've got that comfort. It's I, I yeah. know I've done the work and I'm there. So how do you find that with the BFI stuff and with podcasting in general? Are you <laughs> Did it take you long to get comfortable with throwing away all that prep kind of thing? Because it is a weird one. You'll do all this yeah. prep and then you'll get there and end of the interview and you're like, I covered like 1% of what I've spent the week working on. How, how How's that comfort? Well, I'm I'm very much like you were. I'm an over prepper. Like I will love, I love the research anyway. So I'll just, I'll spend, I like having time to spend like just reading things. If I'm interviewing like a director about a film, then, you know, I'll read tons of reviews. I'll read other people's opinions. I'll like mull in my thoughts. I'll read stuff about them, stuff they've said before. You know, if they've written pieces, I'll read those. Like I love having all that stuff in my head. And I also love over prepping questions. So I might for a, 20, 30 minute interview, I might prep two pages of questions and I'll yeah. get through maybe five. Yeah, yeah. But you also never know how people are, right? Because some mm-hmm. people will give you an answer that's 20 minutes long and you've just asked one question. Yeah. And some people will be like two words and then you're like, oh, okay, so we're going to go through this entire list in 20 minutes. Yeah. And that's also fine. I feel comfortable. And other people will be like more of a conversation. Like one of my favorite interviews was Alex Garland, who... It was supposed to be 20 minutes and then it became an hour because it became a conversation and kind of, I went through my questions, but then he, the things he was saying were just creating more questions. Amazing. And the thing, the thing that I find that, and when I've been on other people's podcasts sometimes, or when I've listened to podcasts or seen people interview people, the main thing that either frustrates me and I definitely try not to do, is like, you're still having a conversation with another person, right? Yeah. So just listen. Yeah. Because maybe the thing that they'll say on the minute two or minute 10 will change your entire approach to the conversation. Just listen and react. Because like whatever they say will 100% be more interesting than what you thought about asking them. Yeah. There's nothing that annoys me more when a podcast just moves on, when there's been a really interesting answer. And you're like, yeah, no, wait, what that person said, the best example I've got, I had um, Caitlin uh, Deaver on. Um, mm-hmm. who I just think is amazing. 
and I've told this story a few times because I was so pleased because I knew every every one of my listeners would be thinking the same as I was thinking. I'd asked a question and she was saying, well, um, yeah, this, this, this. And at that point, uh, my dad was the voice of, of, of Barney the dinosaur. So we were in LA a lot and this, this, this. <laughs> and this whole story goes on and on. And I'm like, I'm listening. I'm being respectful and listening. But as soon as she finished, I was like, just quickly... <laughs> Can we go back to your dad being the voice of Barney the Dinosaur? Because <laughs> it's like, how can we move on from that? How can like it was an amazing answer in general, and she was wonderful because she cracked up because it is so normal to her because it's just part mm-hmm. of her upbringing. But it was like, I can't have my, I can't do my my listeners the disservice of not going back to that really casually dropped in bizarre f- fact. So yeah, yeah, that's really burying the lead there. Yeah, but. Yeah, I do. I do find it like, I think it's different with podcasts and with onstage stuff, right? Because mm. you're, you don't have an audience for this. It's a, it's a two way conversation. Yeah. And it's also safe because you, you can edit stuff, you know, you can edit people's silences. So you can yeah. edit people's ums or they're tripping over their words and you know, making them sound as great as you as you want them to yeah. or you can twist their words as well which you know obviously I've never and will never do yeah but with a live event anything can happen and you have to include the audience as well like mm. if you can feel in the room if they're bored if they're into it if they find it funny what works for them what doesn't like at that Gaspar event I had possibly the best heckler I've ever seen yeah do you remember the guy who started the, the, rapping? The guy that was at the back and started <laughs> rapping. And again, yeah. you know, I was, I was going to ask this because Gasper of all people <laughs> is a risky one to rely on the audience because mm. I certainly know that there were points in my youth that I was a big fan because of a lot of the, dr- the drugs I was doing and stuff like that as well as just the wonderful art of it. But you know there's going to be people very much st- still at that point. And yeah, he started asking really and and really <laughs> um, presumptuous questions as well, kind of being mm-hmm. like, obviously, you know, you know about the third eye and you know about just kind of these yeah, really weird yeah. deep things and Gasper's just <laughs> buzzing and you have to then judge as the host, do we move on from this guy? Do we stick with him? And again, knowing Gasper, you know he's going to want to kind of stick with and go, no, this is the interesting bit. This is the interesting yes. bit. The boring bit was all the people who were just asking, this is the interesting guy because he feels unhinged and you never know where it's going to go. So, yeah. yeah. But then the, you know, you could feel the audience turn against him, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you could feel, you literally in a room full of people, 500 people just groaning and be like, forget the fuck off the yeah. microphone, dude. Just stop it. And once you hear, you feel the audience turn against someone, and you're like, yeah, we need to move on. Yeah. The decision yeah. has been made for you. Yeah, this is over. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something I want to talk to you about. Again, as we can see, we could talk for hours and hours on end. Um, something I wanted to talk to you about, and I often b- bring in weird comparisons, but I'm a big fan of mixed martial arts, right? And I did a judging course and a scoring course. And I find that if I'm watching w- with scoring in mind... Mm-hmm. I watch in a different way and I have different mm-hmm. enjoyment. Now, with your podcast, you've done podcasts about some amazing films and some amazing TV shows and the Succession Easter comes to mind instantly. Does knowing that you're going to talk about it and do a podcast about it affect the way you watch it as a as a viewer? Obviously, the easy example is that episode three recently that had everyone yeah. losing their minds 
are you able to just enjoy it as a viewer or are you kind of there with a notepad kind of going, oh, here's here's the topic. You know, what's your interaction there? Absolutely. Yes, it does change it. Yeah. So it really depends on wh- what I'm looking for. Mm. So like with the Successionistas, for instance, with I do, which I do with my friend Mike, I'll watch each episode like three times. Yeah. I'll watch it once through just as a viewer, just enjoying it. No notepad, just being like, I'm taking it all in. Yeah. Then I'll watch it again and just be making notes, all the quips, all the quotes, thoughts that I have, like takes or insights. And I'll watch it again to see if I've missed anything, to really drill down into scenes or particular yeah. moments and like rewind and watch the same scene like five times. You know, this one moment, I'll watch it over and over again because I'm like, is that what I thought it was? Yeah. And then if I'm reviewing a film, then it's like notepad thoughts, like constantly taking notes in the dark. My handwriting in the dark in my notepads looks like a serial killer's writing because yeah. you're just like, I'm making notes while looking at the screen. And then I'm like, I don't, I think this is what I meant. I don't know. We'll never know. And then it's when I'm watching for festivals. So like I program for two festivals that are very different from one another. Mm -hmm. And I'm like viewing films that are nobody has seen. So there's no, there's no reviews. You know, Mm -hmm. you're some of the first people in the world seeing this work. A lot of it is work in progress. So you're just like, I'm thinking about this. Like, will this work in this city for this crowd, in this cinema? Will this work for us as a festival? Which is very different from watching it as a critic when you're like, I'm reviewing this. I'm going to be commenting Mm. on it. Very different as well from like, I'm going to be writing about it or I'm going to be podcasting about it. Yeah. So, or if I'm like looking at something to interview the filmmakers or the actors, that's a whole nother bag as well. Mm. And actually like if I, if I've just watched a film for fun and then for some reason or another, I have to review it, then I will, if I have time, re-watch it because I need to watch it with a different perspective, like a different hat on. So that means that like a lot of, and I'm really lucky, like this is what I wanted to do my entire life before I even knew that this was a job you could actually do for money and have a life. But there is something about watching stuff for fun as well. And now it's really rare. I'm like, can I just watch, I don't know, Men in Black for fun? Can I just like, for no reason whatsoever. And it's just, it's a different kind of joy to just sit down and be like, I'm just going to watch this because I want to for no reason. I completely agree. I have that, since I started doing my Films of the Year podcast, any film I watch that didn't come out this year feels Mm -hmm. like I'm slacking. It's a treat. Yeah, yeah, I'm slacking (laughs) and it's like, don't tell anyone, but I watched this film from 1972. It's got no relevance to my Films of the Year. I've not put it on my list and written it down and all that. And it is, it's weird because that, it's important to carve those ones out for yourself as mm. well. When you do make your passion your job, it's important yeah. to remember it's your passion as well and to make sure you carve out that those moments where it's purely pa- a passion rather than... Because it can be a combination, as said. Things like these kind of passion p- podcasts almost, where mm. they are, this is about a show and we are going to break it down, but also we're going to come on very excited to say, oh my God, how good is this? Yes. Yeah, it's a weird one. But how do you feel as a, a film fan? Again, this is an, another thing that me and, and Brett Goldstein have discussed a lot, but we kind of, last time we spoke, we were kind of slightly in different places on it. But as a film fan, how do you feel about this era of huge like legacy t- 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 TV shows? Because it's a weird one. Like that episode three of, of Succession mm-hmm. blew me away because 
there were two episodes of The Last of Us that that I thought were as good as TV can get. These are easily mm-hmm. going to be the best episodes of the year. And then that comes out. I'm like, well, that might have beaten th- them. And we're still only in like April. Like, what, what, what is is going on here? But there is still something that is special about being in a cinema in that dark mm-hmm. space, in that, in that world. So yeah, where do you sit on the kind of the the prevalence of TV, maybe over films, certainly from a production companies? point of views and commissioners and funding tv has definitely i'm finding this horrendously at the moment everyone wants tv see how do you Mm. find that kind of the current situation there oh it's a it's a really big question you know i think everyone will have an opinion but Mm. i've always found it really interesting for like the last i don't know five six years right Mm. Uh, maybe even longer. Like I've always loved TV, but there always was before this sort of separation, right? You watch TV at home, you watch films in the cinema, or you buy the DVD or the Blu-ray, you know, the formats change, but whatever, you buy it, it's a thing you have, you own, it's finite. And I've always been a big collector, you know, like I have hundreds of Blu-rays and DVDs and like really weird shit. And I've always been like that since I was a kid. And suddenly there, very gradually, and then suddenly the separation became more porous, right? Mm. So suddenly you're like watching films on streaming services. They're meant to be seen that way. They don't get put in cinemas. And then you're watching TV and film in the same day, in the same breath. People are talking more about TV shows than they are about films. There's bigger fandoms around a TV show than there is around a film, like a single one. Not a director, but like a single film. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing this thing in Cannes, at the Cannes Film Festival a few years ago, when it was like a roundtable thing. And I was thinking about this for a while already. And I was like, there is for people, like not people who work in this industry, but like people who watch things as fans, Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily noticing where it's coming from or how it's supposed to be seen because then you're watching everything in the same place. You know, I spent years when I was studying, I didn't have a TV, I had a laptop and I watched everything on that laptop. Mm. I watched TV, I watched classic films, I watched new films on that laptop. Everything was coming through the same screen. I watched my YouTube videos on that laptop. So everything was there. And then I'm like, there's a whole new two generations after me have grown up with, that being their main reality. You watch things on screens. It doesn't matter what screen you're watching it in. And because you're always receiving it through your phone, your iPads, your laptops, your TVs, a screen is a screen is a screen, right? Mm. So when we talk about film, TV, TikTok, YouTube, everything like that, for many people, they are one and the same. And I get it. Like, I love cinema. I love the cinema as a space. I will never like stop defending it and and programming and going to the cinema. It is magic. But I also understand, and I'm sure the pandemic has made it better for better or for worse. It's made it more evident. People are just thinking about the thing. So, you know, I went to see the first two episodes of season three of Succession at an event. I went to mm-hmm. the, it was like an LFF event and a friend of mine was the was the programmer. She got like the first two episodes of the new third season to yeah. screen at this like Royal Festival Hall, I would think it was. It was 3,000 people like basically chanting to the theme tune. Amazing. It was like, fuck, this is amazing. Like this yeah. is the first time ever that I've seen Succession with another human being, let alone another 3,000 human beings. And I was like, this feels huge. And it's a TV show. Yeah. And it's like, I've not 
been into a cinema that's just like regular punters where people are so buzzed about seeing this movie. Like I think mm. the last time was when I went to see Gone Girl in a cinema on opening opening weekend in Hackney Picture House. And there was like, you know, the biggest screen was full of people and everybody was buzzing yeah. about this film. And I really think what's what's interesting is that there's so many things. And sometimes some of them will capture our imagination. Mm. And I don't think we actually care as a public, whether it's TV or film or a TikTok. Yeah. Or a YouTube series. Like you can you can talk about the chicken shop date yeah. girl, right? Yeah. Amelia. Like she's huge. Like yeah. she's huge. She's in pop culture. She's a pop culture like icon. And she's done a YouTube series of YouTube videos, right? Yeah. She's bigger than most films that have ever been made. Yeah. Succession, mad, The it? Last of Us has yeah. done that. And they're TV shows from the same channel. But there's so many other HBO TV shows that haven't managed to have that like grasp on us, right? Yeah. And then some Marvel, like people talk about Marvel like, oh, it's the devil. But some Marvel movies have captured us. Some haven't. There's many others that just have been and gone and nobody talks about them. Yeah. And then a movie comes along and people will go nuts for it. Like they went nuts for Parasite, right? Mm -hmm. So like you can never quite predict what's going to capture people. Like the thing that I'm most interested in is like, what is the thing that captures people's imaginations. The format, it really doesn't matter because it will constantly change. It just will always change and evolve. And you know what? If someone puts all the chicken shop date videos in a cinema screening, I'm buying a ticket and I'm going. Yeah, I was going to say, it's really interesting of what works in the public screening domain because viewing TV has never appealed. But instantly, the thought of being in a room with hundreds of people when the theme tune for Succession drops, when the theme tune for White Lotus drops, when the theme tune for Game of Thrones or something drops, that'd be a buzz. Because they are just such, you've you've experienced them at home and gone, oh, this is getting me so hyped up. And you can't imagine that with with loads of other people also in that space. Well, before we get onto your book, I promise we're going to talk about your book. Um, <laughs> I want to talk briefly about horror as a genre and why yes. we're kind of in a golden era for it at the moment. Because it's really interesting. Cinema and film is struggling or can struggle at places, but horror seems stronger than ever from host to censor to all of Ariasta's work, X and Pearl from uh, Ty West, Barbarian, all of these it just seem to be real hits and blowing up and real creativity. And it links onto your book, actually, because it also seems like a genre where female characters can thrive, whether mm-hmm. it's it's General Ortega or, or Mia Goff in recent various things or previous guests, Florence Pugh, Neve Algar, all of these who step into horror and mm-hmm. and, and it's it's amazing and, and wondrous. Why are we why is horror so exciting at the moment I guess is is the question here. Oh my god, I mean I'm a big horror nerd. Yeah. Like I've always been since I was a kid and It's funny because I, I never have been. I've I've never really? been a horror nerd, but in recent years horror, more horrors are getting into my films of the year list and it's just it's building up and up. So it's it's interesting for me as someone who's generally been I enjoy horror but it's not something yeah. I seek out and it's just more and more. Can I ask you a question? I'm sorry to turn it around on you on your very podcast, but like, because it's radically different life experiences with the genre, what has made you interested in horror in recent years? It's something I, I, I wonder myself. I think there was a few things like Host and things like that that I'd heard hype about. And then I guess 
social media plays a role because mm-hmm. you start to, I got to know Jed Shepard and that kind of mm-hmm. crowd and work with them a bit. And they're posting a lot about exciting new stuff that isn't out yet, people I should be keeping an eye on. So, so, mm-hmm. uh, so then even before this small independent film comes out, I'm buzzed for it. So I'm then seeking it out more. So I think it's a combination of all these things. I think there is a a richness in new works, but also a greater ability to get that hype going, to spread word organically than than maybe Mm -hmm. there would have been previously if you're not attending the horror Mm -hmm. film festivals and things like this. I love it. I see. That's cool. So yeah, I completely agree with you. Horror has been having a moment for like the Mm. last 10 years. Yeah. And as much as I've always been a fan, it's been really interesting to notice how everyone else has grown to accept the genre. Yeah. Or at least like it's sort of gotten into the mainstream in the way that it hasn't been in a little while because it's always been going strong. Like there's always a whole horror community, there's whole festivals, there's always new stuff going on. But it's sort of like broken through, right? In the last 10 years Mm. or so, like with Get Out, with Ari Aster's work, with Host, which was massive. You know, know, with uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, with The Babadook, like there's so many films that you're like, oh yeah, I get it. And I think it's, it's several things. Like it's a generational thing. I think it's like a generation of filmmakers who have grown up with the horror of the 80s and the 90s, but they have radically different sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Like they're doing something, they're approaching in a different way. I think also the way that it's, the stories that it tells, I think people have used this term like elevated horror, which I think is dog shit. It's really <laughs> snobby. Yeah, uh, It comes from a place of snobbery and like dismissing a hundred years of the genre, right? Yeah, But... What I actually think it contains in itself is that it's it's now a genre that's very character driven mm-hmm. and good characters will connect with anyone, right? Because when yeah. you see Midsommar, you don't think of it as a horror film. You think of Florence Pugh, yeah. you think of her performance, yeah. you think of Danny and her anxiety and her ordeal, right? Yeah. You think of the Babadook, you think of Essie Davis and her like the struggling um, you know, mother on the verge of a nervous breakdown. When you think of Hereditary, think of Tony Collette, like all these characters are so well drawn that they draw you in like emotionally, you're with them, Mm. whatever the story or type of horror it is, because those are all very different movies. And I think there's also this thing of, on the one hand, the critics have really loved this work. So it's getting super great reviews. It's getting shown at like mainstream festivals, not just horror festivals. Yeah. It's doing great at the box office. People, people, as I said, people like myself who aren't traditionally horror fans are kind of going, oh, I should give that a look because it's getting yeah. these reviews and things like that. It's not kind of a, exactly. oh, this is for them. This is for the exactly. horror community. This is kind of, yeah. And I, and I find that to be quite interesting as well because, I mean, I deeply believe in it. Like, I mean, we could spend three hours talking about the history of horror here, of how it's always been the most inventive of genres. Mm-hmm. And I think it continues to be. And, you know, people moan a lot about kind of Marvel and 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 kind of the superhero genre and how it's dominating kind of these tentpole films and stuff and how nobody's making the good mid-budget films anymore and whatnot. But horror always has. Yeah. Like horror will do something super creative with the least amount of resources. Just look at a host. That's what I think is interesting. I think horror bizarrely as a, as a genre is willing, number one, to make mid-budget and low-budget films, which seems yes. like an alien thing in film these days. Everyone yes. wants to only make big-budget things because yeah. that's where it can come off all the best. But also, it's w- w- willing 
to base things on an idea rather than like there's so many first time directors in horror yes. that make these amazing things. And again, I think it's exactly. so much harder for a first time director or writer to get that backing or funding in drama, in comedy, and all these other things. Exactly. Whereas with, with horror, they seem to go, yeah, that sounds great. Let's make it kind of thing rather yeah. than who are you? It's like, no, yeah. it's, you know, it's idea based, which is totally really strong. So I think there's like, it's been sort of, you know, this whole generation of really amazing creative filmmakers that there's an inbuilt audience and like funders and people like that would be like, oh yeah, there's an audience that will, that will make money. And also the last couple of years, look at all these films that have gotten great reviews, great festivals and stuff. Here's a bit, go make it. Yeah. And these breakout stars as well, right? Like Sensor, Prano's film, yeah. you know, Rob and Jed and Gemma's film, The Host. Like all these um, are all of Ariasta, Jordan Peele, you know, these yeah. films that become just huge. Like I showed Get Out at the BFI, like when 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 it came out, I think 2016, mm-hmm. 17. And it was a struggle to get that film, but it was still to this day, one of the most electric and there was no one there. Jordan wasn't there. There was no, there was no Q&A, nothing. Yeah. It was just a regular screening, just like a preview. And it was the most electric yeah. cinema experience I've ever had in my entire life because it was 500 people absolutely in the film in a way that I've never seen in that screen before. It was like there were in it, they were screaming, they were reacting, they were scared, they were laughing. It was... Like, I think horror has this thing where once it gets you, it will just, you will make you react. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm actually, not to make it a, a, about the book, but I'm I'm actually writing my second book right now. And it's right. all about recent horror. So it's all about why it has the last decade just given us so much good stuff in such mm-hmm. a short amount of time. And also, like, why are we connecting to it? in such a big, bad way. And I wonder if it's, you know, there's an element there as well of we have been reckoning with a lot of the real life horrors of just being human in the last decade. You know, we're reckoning with a lot of, a lot of the legacy of white supremacy. We're like Mm -hmm. reckoning with a lot of racism, a lot of homophobia, a lot of transphobia, a lot of misogyny, like uh, horrible political scenarios everywhere. The pandemic, Mm -hmm. you know, recession one, recession two, like so many different things just really genuinely globally bad shit happening to everyone that sometimes i think horror both can address those things in without it being preachy without it being you know like a history class dashcam is a prime example where it just completely steered into it and said yeah how fucked up has this period been well look at this exactly (laughs) exactly watch this uncomfortably and kind of oh okay Yeah, but it makes you confront those things and it makes you feel them. And at the same time, I think it's like a way of us to experience fear without actually being in danger. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's this thing of, there's been quite a lot of um, studies being done by much cleverer people on how horror films help with anxiety. Yeah. And they help with like, you know, sort of emotional, like very heightened emotions. If you're an anxious person, if you suffer from an anxiety disorder, like you usually like people gravitate towards these things because it's a way of confronting that Mm. without having to experience it, which is horrible and terrifying. But you can in a way kind of go through it in a controlled scenario. You can always hit pause. You can always leave the room. You can always just turn the film off. Yeah. 
and it's and it and however you handle it, it ends. It yes. ends, and 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 then you're in this safe space again. Well, let's talk about the book. It's called Unlikable Female Characters: The Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate. And I find just women in film to be such an interesting thing because yeah, I I want to know more about the journey because there's certainly I'll watch films from the fifties and sixties that seem more progressive than some films do now. I'll watch... I grew up on Ripley in in Alien being just one of the most inspirational figures, Sarah Connor in Terminator, and then there seemingly being a lull in that kind of complex female character. So what was it that that drew you to this subject, I guess, initially? I've always been very drawn to, just by instinct, to characters who are just not very nice. Mm. You know, like there is, I mean, I think that you know, as much as I believe in kindness and being nice and and like a good person anyway, we're all trying to be good people, I think. But, you know, some people have complicated, difficult personalities. But what I started noticing right away when I was, you know, growing up is there's different sets of rules for boys than there are for girls. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just, you learn very quickly that those rules are different and you have to abide by different rules. You know, there's this whole thing of like, you know, you need to smile more. You need Mm -hmm. to be nicer. You need to just shut up and like smile, grit your teeth through things. Like there's a lot of endurance in order to appeal to other people or appease other people. And, you know, I watched a lot of classic Hollywood movies when I was growing up and there are certain characters that get stuck in my head because I'm like, oh, she was so mean or she was such a bitch or she was just absolutely the evil and got away with it like she got away with all that stuff she did and it's I remember those characters as individuals yeah um not necessarily as role models because the other thing is I don't need characters to be role models Mm -hmm. I really and when you know pop culture feminism started becoming a thing you know and Beyonce had her feminist thing behind her during a performance and you get all these mugs and this like hashtag girl boss nonsense and all this stuff started becoming really populist. I was really annoyed by this idea that just because you're a woman, you have to be everything all at once. You Mm -hmm. have to be strong. You have to be kind. You have to be smart. You have to be hot. You have to be ambitious. You have to be this and that and this and all these things. And I'm like, okay, but not everybody is all those things. They might not want to be one thing or another. And also you people have bad days and good days and you can be struggling and you can be, you know, maybe you're no, you not necessarily need to be a strong female character because that's absolutely exhausting. Yeah. And I really resented this like almost genre that started appearing of hashtag strong female characters in film and TV where I'm like, I don't give a shit. I already have to do that every day of my life. Yeah. I would like someone to have a full breakdown in front of me and then piece themselves back together. I want someone to get away with murder. I want someone to like be horrifically greedy and ambitious and like have a sort of Gordon Gecko vibe. I'm not saying I'm going to be like those people. I'm not, they're not aspirational, but I would love them to want those things. I would love for them to have those stories because then when you look at, you know, the lists of the best films ever made or the most recognizable or the most uh, screen films constantly, a lot of those are about like antiheroes, right? Yeah. 
Now, when you think of, and also, you know, we were talking about TV earlier. It's the same thing. Joel in The Last of Us is an antihero yeah. and we love him. Yeah. Walter White is an antihero in Breaking Bad. You know, Tony Soprano, yeah. all these great characters. And when you think of films, like, you know, I'm thinking of Goodfellas, like every single character Robert De Niro has ever played. Yeah. Like, yeah. You <laughs> yeah. know, all the classic Hollywood stuff, all the film noir things, those are all antiheroes. You know, they're men with problems, men with like moral dilemmas, men who are very nasty to themselves, to other people. Mm. They have like darkness in them. And I'm like, okay, where is that for girls? Where is yeah. that stuff happening for women? And also, if it happens, they usually get punished for it. They either get totally ostracized from society or they get uh, or they get killed at the end because yeah. you have to make an example out of them. Yeah, it's interesting because I think all pushes for representation normally start wrong because they are the, here's the strong, invincible, oh, you, oh, you want more women, here's Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. It's like absolutely strong and invincible. And again, I, I, I love superhero films, but I think they can also be a distilled description of, of what's wrong, because you've got Wonder Woman here, and then you've got Batman, who's broken yeah. and fucked up and dark and complex and so many layers, and you've got Wonder Woman, who's just a god. And I'm not saying that we don't want Wonder Woman, because that's great as well as its own thing. But for Wonder Woman, there's Superman. For mm-hmm. Batman, where's the the female equ- equivalent of that? Yeah. Like we can have these perfect girl boss type things as well. But mm-hmm. having only them isn't representation. Isn't evening up the odds. Isn't kind of yeah, getting the the balance out there. And yeah, it's fascinating. So you've divided the the book up, and, and we discussed beforehand. Even though I'm I'm buzzing to get into this book. I've not read it because I wanted us to have this conversation where <laughs> I'm in the same position as the listener. Um, mm-hmm. But you divided it into the categories that are there of the bitch, uh, the slut, the angry woman, the psycho, the train wreck, the shrew, the mean girl, the crazy woman, and the weirdo, which, again, it's beautiful how that covers every film ever made. Um, <laughs> so how was it to kind of go through and choose the best examples of this and and the examples of where it's done well and in a positive way and the examples of where it's not done in a positive way or potentially the examples of where it's done in a positive way but then the way it's received by popular culture isn't necessarily mm. positive because there can be a big difference between the intent of the of the piece of the work and how that character is then depicted in in pop culture as totally. such totally totally so all those chapter titles, they're like, they're essentially insults, right? Yeah. For for women. And I knew that going in, I knew that it was like, it was going to be confrontational for some people. And it's not an intent of like reclaiming those words at all. I think that's an entirely personal choice. But mm-hmm. that's how people refer to these character types, right? We know what a mean girl is. We know what um, like a train wreck looks like or what a shrew or a crazy woman looks like. You know, there's... There's, you know, we're talking a lot about fatal attraction now because there's a new show coming around. I, I mm. write a lot about fatal attraction in the crazy woman chapter, like how that became a huge, not just success, but it was a pop culture moment. Like it defined what people thought mm. a quote unquote crazy woman looked and behaved like. Or well, that era bunny boiler became a term yes. in the public, like a general term because that people now film. don't associate yeah. to a film. But yeah, that was literally... A bunny boiler is a pop culture reference now that's exactly. transcended the film itself. 
So I very much looked at films and TV and some musicians' music videos. So I talk a little bit about Madonna. Mm. I talk a little bit about Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and Lana Del Rey in there because I was looking at things that, you know, people would recognize from different eras, you know. So I had no intention when I was looking at this of trying to outsmart the reader you know, I'm not interested in picking out like this, you know, the French film from the 60s that mm-hmm. they've never heard of. I'll do that elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for this purposes, I'm like, I just want people to think about these characters in this way. So I'm sure people know Thelma and Louise. If they haven't, they'll read about it and they'll mm-hmm. be great. And then I'll talk about other films or shows that they may not have seen and they'll read about it, maybe discover. And there's a big long list of recommendations at the end of the book as well from all over the world. But my approach was really like, take something that had a real impact, you know, the way that people talk about, the way that it influenced audiences, the way that it created controversy or was a massive success. So something like Thelma and Louise, something like Fatal Attraction, Fleabag, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever other one I'm thinking of, like something like Gone Girl or Killing Eve as well. Yeah. They had massive, you know, repercussions and massive amounts of audiences and people thinking and writing about it. Like people were engaged with these characters. So with each chapter, I kind of looked at how that film kind of, how those character types are defined and how people react to them across Mm. different eras. So there's also, you know, something that really came into play maybe in the 90s or in the late 80s, like with Fatal Attraction or Misery. And then how has this changed with, you know, Killing Eve in the 2010s? Like the audience also changes. So there's a lot of talking about the films and there's also a lot of talking about how people actually reacted to these characters and most crucially to the actresses playing them. Yeah, Because sometimes, you know, a role will be so defining for an actress and they bring so much to it. Like they are embodying this character. And depending on the time, like people have sometimes have a hard time separating the actress from the role. Mm. Like people will still look at, and I know she's like a, a complicated person anyway, but they'll look at Hannah Horvath from Girls yeah. and just immediately think of Lena Dunham Mm -hmm. or, you know, for a while they look at Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction in the late 80s and be like, oh, she's Alex Forrest. That's the only thing. You look at Sarah Jessica Parker and it's like, oh, she's Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City. And like, and that can be a positive, but it can also be a negative. Like there's some actresses and I write a little bit about Linda Fiorentino from one of my favorite films ever is The Last Seduction. And I think she's one of the best bitches that's ever been on screen. Like, and, you know, on a completely different scale, someone like Alexis Carrington in Dynasty, you know, people will think that the actress is as bad as the character that she's playing. Yeah. And whatever she does, like that image that performance will attach itself to them. And I find that quite fascinating, like how how difficult it can become for them after they've done such an like objectively great job that essentially people believe them so much that then they think that they are as bad or as difficult as the character they're playing. Yeah. And I tried to write in the book about like how that has changed over the years, especially in Hollywood, you know, from the 1930s before the the production code, the Hayes Code, which really censored and limited what could be seen on screen. Right. And really became like a morality, a set of morality guidelines, essentially. Like before that, it was a, it was a heyday. 
for yeah. unlikable female characters. Like there's some amazing films from the 30s where you're like, this is wild. This this is like wild even today. Yeah. And they were made in 1933 or 1932. And then you just go through this whole period of they can be on screen, but then we need to punish them because they need to teach people a lesson. And it took decades for kind of those characters to start getting away with stuff or for having like very new ones or not having to hide in plain sight or not having to rely on on subtext to get like interesting adult complexities across. It's kind of going through these different character archetypes, but each chapter really goes through, you know, it can jump from Mae West from the 1930s to Samantha Jones in the 90s on TV to like Fleabag and WAP, the the song by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. So I really tried to like essentially trace a line of a kind of character, a kind of female character, and why we collectively decided as a as pop culture that she was unlikable, that she was somehow bad and flawed, and that this was an undesirable woman in one way or another through our reaction to film, TV, to very big um, kind of pop culture moments like Madonna sex book or yeah. the WAP video. Like it's really fun when you look back and the when you read kind of the original reaction, the like pearl clutching that happened in 1932 with Mae West right. when she was putting on a play in New York called Sex and then put into jail because of that. Wow. For like obscenity. And then to the reaction that happened to the WAP video from two female rappers yeah. that were not really rapping about anything that male rappers have not rapped about for yeah. decades before. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, it's like I'm reading reviews about WAP or reactions to rap. It's like I'm reading another essay or reaction from 1932. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And, and, and I'm a big believer that popular culture or TV and film can play a big role in changing perceptions in general. So sh- showing nuanced versions Mm-hmm. of each of these types of characters can play a really important role. And you, you were speaking on on Mae West and WAP and Madonna sex book there. And the slut character is a really important one, I think, and is going through some interesting progression in society now in general. I'm a big supporter of sex workers and, and sex mm-hmm. worker rights. And we've had a really interesting recent era in pornography where the dawn of OnlyFans, which again has very much got its own faults, but has brought through this era of creator-controlled work. So the women there are being in control of what they do and what they want to do. But even some of the most liberal people there, if you don't know people in those worlds, it's still dehumanised. It's still Mm -hmm. a character and it's still perceived in a certain way why i've got a, a, a fair few friends who are in the sex work industry and there is still that illusion of the slut like the people mm-hmm. who are a, a, a positive or negative still dehumanize in that way that this is just a person who is there for sexual pleasure and interest and things like what was the show that Hayley squires did on channel four i can't remember the name of it but it was about someone in the porn industry um mm-hmm. and it was fantastic and it had nuance and it showed the variation of this character, of this world, of this work. And things like that are key, right? So they're not just a discussion. 
it's not just a music video or a sex mm-hmm. book. It's humans and people yeah. making choices. So, yeah, how how have you found that in the or that that variation? And do you see? I said you've 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 flagged on that subject of May West, Madonna, and WAP. Mm. Have we gone up and down? Have we stayed in the same l- l- lane? Because in my memory, it feels like the Madonna sex book was more celebrated than either of those other things. And that's kind of in the middle there. Well, it's quite interesting to like, you know, the the distance that we all have with these things. You know, I didn't live through a Mado- through Madonna sex book. I have it, but I didn't live through yeah. the controversy myself as like a an adult. Yeah. Uh, obviously didn't live through the Mae West controversy. So you are essentially trying to, especially with stuff in the past, get a grasp on what was the reaction and then what was the intention and obviously how are we reading it today? Because I think, you know, May West, another very complicated person that has, you know, in later life had some terrible views. But mm-hmm. like that was hugely successful financially because it was so raunchy. And then she was very much kind of, um, you know, her work diminished because she was censored. And then yeah. it became kind of a, a a different beast. And when you look at the, when I was reading about the Madonna sex book, like the reaction was twofold, very celebrated and also very controversial mm. and kind of, you know, written about both positively and negatively. Same with WAP. I was going to say WAP feels like that completely, that the, yeah. almost the negative causes an even stronger reaction on the positive to, to, exactly. to fight back against that and go, ha, look at you sensitive idiots (laughs) and also because with WAP we have social media so Mm. now just audiences have a direct pipeline into the conversation they can talk about it you can see it you know and you can be essentially in a bubble of your own creation where I mostly because of my own views and the people I surround myself with surrounded by people who reacted super positively to it I was like yes this is incredible this is amazing what a banger and like, and good for them. And I'm really happy for, for Megan and for Cardi for that runaway success. Yeah. And then occasionally you'll just hear someone be like, no, this is, this is the devil's work. And I'm like, yeah. excuse me, this is still happening, but it is, yeah. it is still happening. And there's people, you know, who hate Fleabag and think it's really reductive, even though it was a runaway success. And I, I people are allowed to do that. I'll, I will read both sides of the, of the story. And there's beautiful essays written that, who absolutely hate films that I love. And I'll still read them. It doesn't necessarily, I don't get all up in arms about it. What I do think is interesting how it goes up and down and up again and down again through Mm. the years. And obviously I'm looking at a very, very small cross section of pop culture. This is mostly English language and it's mostly focused on film and TV. You could do a whole nother book like this that looks at how real women Mm. were affected by this. You know, real human beings, not fictional characters. And I really wanted to not stray into that because I'm like, that needs a whole different approach Mm. and a lot more kind of deep diving into a real person's life. And that would take a lot more time and a lot more care because I wouldn't want to be writing about real women who got affected by the onslaught of pop culture hate. And I do think we're now living in an upwards moment where there's a lot of podcasts, a lot of documentaries, a lot of interviews, a lot of public opinion, essentially looking back at recent history and be yeah. like, oh, we were, we were quite shit to, you know, we're quite shit to Britney. Yeah. We're really shit to Paris Hilton. The Pamela Anderson documentary blew me away because it was like, yeah, it's Loved like, it. wow, this wasn't, 
Pamela Anderson wasn't treated as a human. As I said, it was no. that, that whole dehumanising thing. Yeah. This was a fictional character that we're all looking at and laughing at at points or exploiting or whatever else. And Yeah. yeah. And Pam Anderson, I love the documentary. Yeah. And I've always loved her yeah. as a kind of, as a public figure. I think as I watched Baywatch as a kid, yeah. I just thought yeah, she was yeah, the most yeah. beautiful woman I've ever yeah. seen. And I wrote about that documentary. And when I watched it, it was so moving because... Yeah. There is, you know, and this is a real person who got her property stolen. She was already massively objectified because of a role she played on a TV show that was on on daytime. Like yeah. this is a fully professionally shot, very popular TV yeah. show. And she got huge because of that. She was doing like photo shoots with Playboy. It was all consensual, well-paid. She was doing great. But when it came to protecting her, she was essentially slut-shamed. Yeah. Even though by all the rules of the same society that she was slut-shamed by, she did not absolutely nothing wrong. So even though she was married and she was with her husband and they had their property stolen, she still got absolutely demonized. Yeah. And it's because and of that role, ruined. I said, because of that role yeah. of the slut already established yeah. there. It's their fault. It's her fault. She's the one in the wrong rather than anyone else. And I hate the, oh, imagine if it was my sister or my daughters or whatever else, because I don't think we should have to have a direct, people shouldn't have to have a direct relation to our life yeah. for us to have empathy and to care. They're a human exactly. in their own right. But that's the easiest example in that situation of kind of going, yeah, but you're dismissing it as well. It's her own fault because that's the kind of person that she is. It's like, no, imagine if it was someone else. It'd be, a different world, but yeah, completely. And one of the one of the things that I thought was like was really driving the book that I write a lot about in the book through all these different archetypes, right? You know, when you think of a train wreck, you think of a particular kind of woman. When you think mm -hmm. of a crazy woman, you think of a different kind of an angry woman or a mean girl or a bitch. And when I was writing about all these different flavors of films, TV shows, and and characters the end of the day, there's something really dangerous when this pop culture, when the reaction is that, oh, you know, like they were screaming at screenings of Fatal Attraction back in the day in the mm -hmm. 80s, kill the bitch, kill the bitch, where wow. it's this reaction of, oh, she's transgressed in some way, either because she's too angry or she's too slutty or she's too much of a party girl or she's too unstable. So that just gives you free license to dismiss her humanity. And that is the, you know, it's not a, it's not a, I don't think it's a preachy book at all, but there is this sort of sense of danger that underlines popular culture, right? Mm. Of it both reflects us and it teaches us how to be because you're seeing humans in these extreme situations, right? Yeah. And if you're constantly being fed and surrounded by, you know, people laughing at or dismissing or hating and vilifying to the point of violence a kind of female character, then that becomes ingrained in you, right? I'm not saying there's, a, there's like a direct, oh, well, I've seen someone do this in a movie, so I'm going to do it myself because that's way too simplistic. But I think it does erode you when yeah. there's so much of it. Yeah. Like when you see it over and over and over again, that this kind of woman gets punished. This kind of woman gets punished. This kind of woman gets called a slut. This kind of woman gets called crazy. This kind of woman always loses in the end. That piles up. And that's kind of what I mean by 
the the kind of the subtitle of the book is like the woman pop culture wants you to hate. Pop culture may want us to hate them, but then there's the audience, you know, there's people like me, so many other people like me, um, not necessarily always just a, a female audience where yeah. there is humanity in these characters and there's room for empathy. And I think in recent years, like you can, you know, I go back very far into like the 30s and the 40s into uh, different films, but there is a a renaissance in a way of amazing TV work, amazing films that are that have those traits uh, front and center, but that also the audience have absolutely fallen in love with these characters because of their messiness, because yeah. of how, you know, unstable, unlikable they are. You know, like the effect that Fleabag has had or Broad City or, you know, The Crazy Ex-Girlfriend or Orange is the New Black or Killing Eve. Like, all these or Titan, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes a few yeah. years ago. Like these, it's are the film films. I wanted to talk to you about the most here, but we're running out of time, <laughs> so I can't do it. But again, it's it's a prime example of again that was I think every character in that film was unlikable, but a single one. What an astounding! Like I couldn't 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 look away. It was just yeah, work I love of that brilliance. Film. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I'll wrap things up there. There's just on this last bit. There's been about eight different things I want to go off on tangents on. but um, And there's one that I am going to talk to you about as, as soon as we stop recording, just briefly, just because um, it's got a spoiler in. So it's, it's not worth discussing on the podcast. But um, I guess, how do you feel now you've written the book? Because looking back, consciously looking back at history can be depressing. Because as you <laughs> said, it's downwards, upwards, downwards, upwards. And we like to think that we'd be on this upwards trajectory where things are getting more liberal, more uh, just opening up and getting better and better. And it can be tough to look back and go, oh no, actually, where we are now is kind of where we were 30 years ago. And we've gone, we've been higher and we've been lower. So we're not in the worst bit, but we're certainly not on this upward trajectory how's it feeling kind of on the other end of of of, of creating this are you okay <laughs> <laughs> um honestly because i'm i'm already writing the next one the answer is clearly no i'm not okay because why would i do this to myself again voluntarily yeah. um honestly like this book will never be complete in my head because yeah. i was still watching stuff and researching until the day I stopped writing, that wow. I had to file uh, the first draft and then the second and the third draft. And I could have gone on. Like, even in the last month, there's been like four different films and TV shows that have come out that would have been perfect yeah. for yeah. the book. Like So it it is just because we're living in such a golden age of this kind of like unlikable, different broad strokes of unlikable female characters it's just never going to end. Yeah. And that's a good thing. It just means that um, I've looked back a lot of things, but I could just be writing forever based on new stuff that is happening, that is being put out, that is unbelievably good and complicated and meaty. Or, or based on, on Mia Goff's whole career. Like in, oh God, in yeah. Infinity Pool and Pearl are just two completely different kind of offerings, but so complex, so much yeah. to get your head around on if I like this character, if I hate this character, why I have either of those feelings, you know. 
Exactly. Yeah, or like Rachel sense. Wise yeah. in Dead Ringers yeah. or, you know, a, a new version of Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction, the TV show. So yeah. there is just, there's so much coming out every single week that I'm like, I could just write forever about this kind of characters and it would, it would not stop being relevant. Yeah. Well, I'm going to end by asking where can people keep up to date on when you are writing or talking for hours on all of these subjects because there is it is it is there's never ending things to talk about here so it's a it's a perfect one what would you like to plug or point people in the direction of so you can pre-order unlikable female characters wherever you get your books it's mm-hmm. coming out on may 9th in the states and june 9th in the uk yep. and i'll be doing some events around it uh around the uk in the summer and you can listen to my horror podcast the final girls which is coming out of hiatus very very soon for a new season and that's all about horror films and then you can also listen to my succession recap podcast that i do with my friend mike munzer at the successionistas and you can follow me on twitter and instagram at adabi demented i'm always posting things that i'm doing or things that i've written over there it's been a joy chatting to you and I appreciate you taking the time and I can't wait to get my teeth into the book so thank you for for coming and having a natter no thank you so much for asking me it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to be on your show thank you You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 511. That was Anna. Man, we could have talked for hours. When we came off mic, off recording at least, I rambled for at least five more minutes and then thought I need to be respectful with this new person's time. (laughs) We've never properly met. I'm getting very excited to talk to them. We're having a wonderful conversation, but I have to respect boundaries and let them get on with their life. So I cut it short in the end. But yeah, amazing mind, amazing voice, amazing podcaster. Really excited to have this conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And you might have just got three or four new podcasts to be a fan of off the back of it. So, oh, pre-order Anna's book. Pre-order it now. I know we mentioned it at the end there, but yeah, get that ordered. I'll be back next week. I'll tell you who's next week. I never pre-bill in case things change time-wise, but um, next week's guest is the return of James Acaster, who's been on on his own, who's been on as part of a drunk cast, a five-episode drunk cast where we got really hammered. And James is coming on. We're going to talk about his new album. What? A lot of you are saying. Honestly, it's amazing. This is going to blow your mind. This conversation is going to blow your mind. We talk about Celebrity Hunted, we talk about off menu. There was a third thing that we really got into that I think a lot of people will be excited about, but I've forgotten it for now. So there you go. We talk about John Kearns, if you're into that. Anyway, um, also, if you enjoyed this episode, go back and listen to the episodes with Prano Bailey Bond. Go back and listen to the episodes with Florence Pugh, with Neve Algar. Loads of the people we mentioned. The Gaspar Noe episode. Go and listen to to that there's loads of good episodes for you to get your teeth into so go and have a little look i'll see you next week until then stay safe and stay sane ta-ta